serve God. Like any good leader, he was looking beyond his own lifetime. He didn't simply want them to serve God while he was alive, but he wanted to have some assurance and some sense that they would continue to serve God even after his death. And so he comes to them and he puts it to them, first by way of their immediate history. He says, this is what God has done for us. He promised this land, we've entered it, we've taken it, it's ours. And now look, we're living in cities that we didn't build. And we're eating from vineyards and from orchards that we didn't plant. How did that happen? Because God was with us and God fought for us. In fact, we're here because of a promise made to our father Abraham centuries before. And it was by God's very grace, a free gift from him, that he would give us this land. We don't deserve it. Abraham didn't deserve it. But here we find ourselves having it because of God's grace to us, his gift to us. We don't deserve it, yet here it is. We don't deserve it, yet we are living in cities we didn't build. We are eating from orchards and vineyards we didn't plant. And so here we are. And Joshua comes to the people and he says, Now I'm going to draw a line in the sand for you. Given all of this, who are you going to serve? You can serve the gods of, of, of Abraham, that is his family, before God called him out of all that. They were idolaters. You can serve those gods. You can serve the gods back in Egypt. You can serve the gods of the people in whose land we are now dwelling. Or you can serve the true and living God. And it wasn't as if that was a real kind of choice, like there are real alternatives. This God's okay, and that God's okay, and this God's okay, and that God's okay. He was saying, you can serve them if, you, if you'd like, but as for me and my house, we are going to serve God. And for Joshua, that meant being obedient to God, because when we serve God, there is nothing we, we give him that he doesn't already have. It's, it's not like the service that we do for one another where we fill in the gaps, where we provide something that you're missing. God isn't missing anything. So when we serve him, it's not like we're, we're, we're giving something he doesn't have. And he says, oh, thank you. That's very nice. I didn't know that even existed. It isn't like that. And we serve him by trusting him, by trusting that his promises are true and trusting that all he promises will satisfy. And so when we trust him like that, we obey him. And as we obey him, that's serving him. So for Joshua, that meant driving out all the people so that we wouldn't be tempted to serve their gods, extracting all of these other gods from our midst and from our minds, which is really where they dwell. It isn't so much a statue that's in the living room or on your dashboard. It's, uh, it's what's in your mind. Who's defining your life? Who's directing your life? Where you find your joy and delight? That's... So I want you to extract all of that from your lives. And I want you to follow after God alone, exclusively. For us, when we talk about serving God, last Sunday as we drew that line, as we came to the communion table saying, no, we're going to serve God it meant that we would trust him, his promises, and that his promises satisfy. And that we would spend our lives, as the apostle says, taking out the old and putting on the new, putting to death that which is from our former nature, and living godly lives. That's what it would mean for us in every sphere of our existence. To serve God. So that's how Joshua puts it. Now, here's, 
how they respond. Notice what I read in verse 16. The people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, for it's the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did great signs in our, uh, in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went and among all the peoples uh, through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us the people, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. And you're thinking at that point, Joshua must be thrilled. They get it. That's precisely what he said. He said, look what God has done. Now, how could you serve another? And they said, all right, we see what God has done. We won't serve another. I mean, it seemed like they nailed it. And then Joshua comes back and says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. Now, if I'm the people, I'm going, right? I don't know what that looks like on the tape that the people will get. But, but uh, I, a sense of bewilderment. There you go. Um, why does he say that? Why doesn't he affirm their choice? Why doesn't he say, that's really good. That's exactly what I wanted you to say. That's exactly what I want you to do. Why does he turn to them and say, you can't do this? We know that's not Joshua's ultimate conclusion because if you remember what I read towards the end of this particular section, he, he, he listens to them and says, all right. But he's very solemn still. He says, your word is a witness against yourself. And then he makes a covenant with them. And he has this stone. And he says, in a sense, this stone has heard everything that we've talked about. And so it will be a witness. Now, we know stones don't hear. His point is that this stone will be here. And every time you look at it or look at a stone that looks like it, you'll be reminded of this moment. You'll be reminded of the fact that a line was drawn and that you said you'd serve God. And, and, and that's the very course of your, of your life. So this statement, you can't serve the Lord, isn't, isn't the ultimate thing that he's going to come to. But, but why does he even pause with this messy time? Why does he even question them? Why does he say this? Well, I think this, because it's good for them and for us and every generation in between when we say that we're going to serve the Lord to pause and to think about what we've just said. To think about what we've just professed. To think about what we've just committed to. Because when we're called to serve God, we're called to serve Him exclusively. We're called to serve Him honestly. We're called to serve Him joyfully. We're called to serve Him lovingly. And so Joshua pauses, I think, for this particular moment in time. And he says to them, you're unable to serve God for he is a holy God. Always in the scripture when God's holiness is considered, there's a certain measure of fright. There's a certain measure of trembling. Remember, Moses sees this bush that's on fire but not being consumed. And God says to him, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. And I don't know how you read the Bible and how you're reading that through, but when I get to that point in the Bible, I just stop and suck air. Because I think, what would that have been like? To be in the very presence of purity, perfect holiness. Isaiah, you know this incident. Many of you, Isaiah walks into the temple. He sees this great vision of God. And God is huge. The scripture says that the train of his robe 
filled the temple. The temple is huge. And so you figure just the end of his robe filled it. You can only imagine how huge the one wearing the robe was. And, 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 and Isaiah saw these angels flying around the throne of God saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. And then you know what happened to Isaiah. He bit the dust. In the presence of that holiness, he saw his own unholiness. And he said, I'm going to blow up. I, I feel like I'm coming undone. I don't know what to do with myself. It, completely within myself, I'm just, he was just overwhelmed. Didn't know what to do. Oh. And he said, I, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. He's saying that everything that comes out of me is unclean. And I, I didn't recognize that a minute ago. But now that I'm standing in, in the very presence of holiness, I see it. It's very clear how unclean this is. And I come from a people just like me. And so how can I stand in the very presence of, of holiness? It was a time in the life of Jesus and his disciples when they were at the Sea of Galilee and Jesus said, let's go to the other side. He said, fine, they got into a boat. Jesus found a cushion and he went to sleep. And then a huge storm came up. And at first the disciples appeared to be afraid of the storm because it's, 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 it's a storm that looks like it's going to overwhelm them. And to, 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 to make afraid a group of some of whom at least are fishermen on, on the sea it must be a huge storm. And so Jesus... They wake him up uh, and say, don't you care about us? And, 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 and so I just say that because haven't you said that to God from time to time? Don't you really care about me? But anyway, Jesus uh, uh, gets up and says, peace be still. And then the scripture says they're filled with fear. You would think that their fear would go away. You would think that now that the storm's gone, we have nothing to be afraid of. But what you have in your very boat is someone who's stronger than that storm. That's holiness. And the scripture said they were afraid as they stood in the very presence of Jesus. And I think there's a sense that Joshua is saying to these people and to us when we perhaps quickly or even with a measure of consideration say, I'll serve the Lord. Joshua says, He's holy. And then he says he's jealous. Now we think of jealousy, we normally think of a bad trait. Because in human beings, jealousy is generally a bad trait. It's one of those traits that, that often resolve, or comes from our, 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 our pride. And we basically says, say, I want what you have, or I want who you are, and I hate you. Because you have it and I don't. So we're jealous of all kinds of things. And, and we all experience this kind of jealousy. Sometimes we're jealous because of the attractiveness of another person. They look better than we do. Or they're wealthy. They have more money than we do. Or their house it's bigger than ours. Or their car it's nicer than ours. Or their intelligence. Or even in Christian circles, we never admit this. But we're jealous of one another's giftedness, which is really a funny thing if you think about it. But, but this person has the gift of that, and that person has the gift of this, and that's the one I want, and I don't have it. So we're jealous of each other, and we get mad at each other because you have that and I don't, so I'm not going to listen to you even though you're gifted. Um, right? We have all this jealousy that arises within us for all kinds of, kinds of reasons. But jealousy is also a good thing in the right context. A wife 
should be jealous for her husband's affections. A husband should be jealous for his wife's affection. Meaning that I so care for you, I so love you in this relationship, that I don't want your affections to go to anyone else. And so when they do go to anyone else, then I'll be angry. And rightfully so. I'll be protective. And rightfully so. And when the scripture says about God that he's jealous, he's jealous for the honor of his own name. That his name shouldn't be dishonored. And that was right. He should be jealous for his own name. To be jealous for the name of any other would be idolatry. For he is the highest and best. In fact, when the scripture speaks of not worshiping other gods, that's when it's most likely to use this expression that God is jealous. In, Genesis, in, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, right after the first two commandments, right after we're told not to have any other gods before him, right after we're told not to make any images of God because they'll all be false, it says he is a jealous God, jealous for his own name. In Exodus chapter 34, in fact, the scripture says of God, he says, my name is jealous. That is, I'm jealous for your affections. Don't give your affections to anyone else. I'm in a sense, like your husband. That's an image often used in scripture of God, that he's our husband, that, that we're his bride, if you will. And therefore, he says, I'm jealous for your affections. Don't take your affections anywhere else. If you take your affections to any, anywhere else, my wrath will be aroused. And Joshua saying, listen, I know what you're saying. And I know what I just said. I have a sneaking suspicion. His knees are trembling in the midst of this as well. I know that we're talking about serving God. But remember, he's holy. And remember, he's jealous. And then he says something that just sort of blows every category in our mind. He says, he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. We say, wait a minute, everything in my whole life is predicated on the fact that God will forgive my sins. What do you mean he won't forgive my sins? Well, Joshua goes on, verse 20, he says, If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. He says, when you choose to serve God, you're making a lifelong commitment. This isn't a small thing. This is a transforming thing. This isn't a small thing. This is a life-consuming thing to follow after him. And so if on the one day you say you're going to serve him, but then you spend the rest of your life forsaking him, forget it. He who perseveres in this love will be saved. It isn't just a one-time thing. You don't get your religion today and move on after that. This is a, this is a lifelong thing. So Joshua says, I just want you to know what you're committing to. I just want you to know what you're here for. And so when you say you'll serve the Lord, I get this sense that perhaps you're jumping into this too quickly. I want you to, I want you to realize that he's holy and that he's jealous. And that if you turn away from him, he, 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 he won't forgive you. I want you to continue to walk with him. Sounds a lot like Jesus, in fact. Turn to Matthew and chapter 10. Uh, Matthew and chapter 10, please. And <clears throat> verse 34. 
Jesus put it like this. He says, do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Jesus is saying, I'm the defining relationship in your life. The defining relationship in your life is not your father or your mother. It's not your husband or wife. It's not your son or daughter. It's not your mother-in-law or your father-in-law. It's me. And while Jesus isn't saying, I want you to pick fights with everybody in your family, those will just happen. Uh, I don't want you to pick fights with everybody in your family. I want you to know that your loyalty is to me first, last, and always. In fact, your relationship with them is defined by me. So I've told you to love them, but I want you to love them my way. But understand that it may well be that because you follow me, they may hate you. And when they hate you, don't turn from me to them. Live with their hatred of you. Though that may be painful and disappointing and very difficult in your life. We know that in the days of Jesus, we know even now in these days, this is true for some people. In those days, and even in our own day, funerals are held in certain parts of the world and through, by those of certain faiths when their children convert to Christianity. The relationship is completely severed. It may be true for some of you that you experience that kind of thing in the context of your own families. That while it may not be hatred, you do know there's something because you're a Christian and they're not. And it's painful in the relationship and how you're treated. We have college students who come here to the University of Kansas and become Christians. And they come to many of us on the staff and some elders, I'm sure, and so forth. And maybe some of you who are in relationship with them may say, please pray for me because I'm going home over Christmas. And this is not going to be easy because they know I've become a Christian or I'm going to tell them I've become a Christian. And I know when I do that, it's not going to be easy for me. But we must remind them in the midst of even the pain of that and the disappointment of that and all of that, still their loyalty is to Christ. And I hope you just see the subtlety here. It's probably not so subtle, really, what Jesus is claiming about himself. If anybody doesn't believe that Jesus thought himself to be God, here is a passage you can always point to, because here he's making himself out to be God. Nobody has the right to say this kind of thing about themselves other than God. Because he's saying, Jesus is saying, the relationship you have with me is the defining relationship of your life. Don't go anywhere else. To have that relationship defined, not father and mother, not son or daughter, not in-laws, not even yourself. Because what I want you to do is I want you to take up your cross. And I want you to put to death everything that isn't of me. I want you to put to death everything that isn't loyalty to me. I want you to put to death everything that isn't defined by me. Luke. I've anticipated myself. Luke chapter 14. Notice how Jesus puts it. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. 
Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, now you can tell right away that Jesus isn't a politician, as we understand most to be. He isn't someone who's simply interested in followers in a sense of having a lot of people to say, well, I had a thousand follow me today and two thousand tomorrow. Uh, This is what you call preaching down a crowd. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is of great way away, great, a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Again, Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to sit and realize what you're being called to when you follow after me. It means renouncing all other loyalties. It means renouncing, in a sense, all other affections that would drive you and define you and direct your lives. I want all of those loyalties, all those affections, all those thoughts, all those inclinations, Jesus says, to be defined by me and no one else. So think about it. I think Joshua is saying, think about it. Before you rush in, think about it. Now the question is, what, what are we really giving up here? What are we giving up in order to, to, to follow after Jesus? J.C. Ryle. Uh, wrote a book called Holiness in 1879. It was published, not this particular one. Um, And he has a chapter in this book of holiness called The Cost. He lays out just four general costs of following Jesus. Let me read you a little bit. Hang with me. He's a far better preacher than I. He says, for one thing, it will cost him his self-righteousness. You see, if if you want to follow Jesus, it'll cost your self-righteousness. It'll cost your confidence in yourself. He says he must always cast away uh, pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. And you you may think, well, I can do that on a good day. (laughs) Ryle didn't say that. I said that, but. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved only by free grace and owing all to the merit and righteousness of another. He must really feel as well as say the prayer book words that he has erred and gone astray like a lost sheep and that he has left undone the things he ought to have done and done the things he ought not to have done and that there is no health in him. He must be willing to give up all trust in his own morality, respectability, Praying, Bible reading, church going, and sacrament receiving, and to trust in nothing but Jesus Christ. That's the cost to shed all of that. As Ryle enters into this discussion, he says, it's easy to be an outward Christian. All you have to do is go to church, he says, three times a week. 
it's lesser even now, twice a month, right? I have to do to go to church a couple of times a month. And he says, and maintain a certain respectable morality. And he says, you look like a Christian. You're no Christian, but you look like one at that point. So he says, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to be a server of Jesus, you've got to renounce your self-righteousness. And the second thing he says, you must, he says another thing, it will cost a man his sins. He says, you must be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in God's sight. Now, we understand that we don't become sinless as we follow Christ. But he says, your attitude to your sin is to renounce it, to realize this is the very thing that's out to kill you. And so, give it up. And your attitude towards it should be, I don't want anything to do with this sin. Later, I love this sentence, he says, about one who follows Christ. He says, he and sin must quarrel if he and God are to be friends. We must quarrel with sin if we're not going to be quarreling with God. If we're going to be friends with God, we can't be friends with sin. So he says, he must be willing to give up every practice and habit which is wrong in God's sight. He must set his face against it, quarrel with it, break off from it, fight it, crucify it, labor to give it up under whatever the world around him, uh, uh, may. Uh, sorry, labor to give it up Whatever the world around him may say or think, he must do this honestly and fairly. There must be no separate truce with any special sin which he loves. Right? Uh, he says that, and we hear that, and he knows what we're hearing. We all have these special little truces, don't we? With the things that we, the sins that we love. We kind of an agreement. I won't tell on you if you don't tell on me. Right? No, no, no. It's going to cost us that. He must count all sins as his deadly enemies and hate every false way, whether little or great, whether open or secret. All his sins must be thoroughly renounced. They may struggle hard with him every day and sometimes almost get the mastery over him, but he must never give way to them. He must keep up a perpetual war with his sins. Thirdly, he puts it like this. He says what it costs us to follow Jesus. He says it will cost a man his love of ease. He says he must take pains and trouble if he means to run a successful race towards heaven. He must daily watch and stand on his guard like a soldier on enemy's ground. He must take heed to his behavior every hour of the day in every company, in every place, in public as well as in private, among strangers as well as at home. He must be careful over his time, his tongue, his temper, his thoughts, his imagination, his motives, his conduct in every relation of life. He must be diligent about his prayers, his Bible reading, and his use of Sundays, which all their means of grace. In attending to these things, he may come far short of perfection, but there is none of them that he can safely neglect. And finally, this he says, in the last place, it will cost a man the favor of the world. He must be content to be thought ill of by man if he pleases God. He must count it no strange thing to be mocked, ridiculed, slandered, persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions and practices and religion despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to the thought by many a fool, an enthusiast, a fanatic, to have his words perverted and his actions misrepresented. In fact, he must not marvel if some call him mad. The master says, remember the word that I said unto you. 
The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you. I suppose we could add to the list. I suppose we could amend it and change it. But we do realize we must renounce our self-righteousness. It will cost our good standing in our own minds. And our preservation of our good standing in the minds of others. To become a Christian. To admit ourselves to be sinners. To admit ourselves to be lost. To admit that the best we can do in our own lives is to earn the wrath of God. That's the best we can do. And that cuts against this self-righteousness. He says we must renounce our sins. Yes, we know that, that we're never going to overcome them utterly, but we must take a stand against them at all times and in every place. Thus, we renounce this life of ease, this comfort that we think that life will be hunky-dory and easy just to sort of glide through and we'll coast our way to heaven. But it isn't like that at all. And we must stand watch at all places and at all times. And thus, you see, we may lose the favor of the world. It shouldn't surprise us when that takes place. And we must be willing to accept that even as we follow after Christ. Remember, there was a time in the life of Jesus that he gave a hard saying. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And, and the disciples went, what do we do about that? And some even left him. This is in John chapter 6. And Jesus said to the disciples, what are you going to do? Are you going to leave me too? And Peter said, how can we? Because you have the words of eternal life. In other words, given all of this, given all this cost that may well take place, Peter could see really in the midst of it, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. So perhaps we may lose the whole world, but we would gain our souls. We might renounce the pleasures of sin, which are out to kill us, and in return receive the blessings of the favor of God. We may lose that which is temporal, but gain that which is Eternal, And so even still, you see, the mind is working and saying, yes, I realize that he's holy. I realize he's jealous. I realize that if I forsake him, I won't be forgiven. But, but why would I forsake him? And why would my affections turn against him? And why would I not serve him and, and even follow him? And yet the caution is struck even again. You remember the parable of Jesus. He talked about the soils upon which seed could fall. And he made mention of the, the rocky soil that had no root. And he said, but when tribulation and persecutions arise, he says, be careful. Make sure there's root there. And he says, there's seed that falls on the thorny soil. And the problem there is that the thorns choke out the seed. And he said, what chokes out the seed of the word of God is the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Because, you see, the world comes to us and piles cares upon us and then says to us, see, God can't satisfy you. Look at how troubled you are. God can't help you. Look at all the difficulties you're facing. God can't help you. But, but, but if only I had wealth. If only I had wealth, that, that would solve my problems. If only I had wealth, then that would get me out of all of these cares. If only I had wealth, then I'd be so much better off. And so the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches gang up against us. And we say, okay, I'll... And we end up like that man that Jesus called the rich fool. who had enough stored up in his barns to last him two lifetimes. And he died that night. 
And while he was rich in the context of the world, he was poor in the things of God. I told you this wasn't your average Christmas sermon. It's a time for us to really think honestly about who we are and whose we are and who it is that we will serve. The good news for us, as we mentioned last week, is that though we're called to serve God, he first serves us. Though we're called to serve God, we receive all that we need to serve him from him. See, see, last week it was kind of a sense of resolve, for those of you who were with us last week. Last week was kind of, kind of a sense of resolve. Yes, I will follow God. This week, it's a sense of resolve with humility. I will serve him, I will follow him as he enables me. There's a certain sense of stillness this week as we come. And we come on the same, for the same reason, on the same basis. We come because Jesus does indeed have for us the words of eternal life. We come because even if we make the comparison between Jesus and all other gods, we realize that all other gods are faulty. We realize that none of them really is concerned about our own souls. None of them is concerned to help us, whether they be the, the gods of Egypt or the gods of Abraham's fathers or the, the gods of the Amorites or the gods in America. None of them are really concerned about our own souls. But Jesus is. And he comes and he says, I do have the words of eternal life. Not only do I have the words of eternal life, but I am eternal life. It was a great scene as Jesus is facing Pilate, you remember, at the trial right before his crucifixion. And after a brief discussion, Pilate looks to Jesus and says, What is truth? And Jesus says nothing. But he answered the question. Because he went to the cross. Which is truth. The truth is that we're sinners in the sight of God. And deserve his wrath. The truth is that God has so loved that he sent his son. Who would take the sins of sinners upon himself and die that their sins might be forgiven. The truth is that there's eternal life in believing in him. You see, that's exactly what Jesus was laying out for his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. He took the bread that was around that Passover table, which wasn't unusual, and he broke it, which wasn't unusual. And then he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Now that was different. That was unusual. He said, this is truth. In the same way he took the cup was there, that was there not unusual. He gave it to them, which was not unusual. And then he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. That was different. This is truth. You want forgiveness of sins. You want to have access to the Father. You want to be united to him. You want to be reconciled to him. You want to belong to him. You want to have eternal life. You want to have his spirit living within you. 
This is truth, he says. And so he invites us to come. And the invitation is not so unlike that which is the invitation from Joshua. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Turn away, come and serve. Repent. Turn away from every other loyalty, every other affection, every other thing that can define your life, every other thing that would direct your life. He says, turn away from that, turn to me. In faith, believing, trust me. And the way that you serve me is by trusting that my promises are true. The way that you serve me are by trusting that my promises are true and following me that I will satisfy you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, on this eve of Christmas. We understand Jesus came, lived among us, died, rose, ascended, now sits, awaiting his time to come again. And here we sit. The line's been drawn for many, maybe most, maybe all. You said, yes, we believe. And now's the day just to sit back, rethink, breathe in. What does that mean? I pray you'd fill each one of us with this great sense of what that means, of following you and you alone, of renouncing other loyalties and other affections. Because, Father, over time, other loyalties and other affections creep in and we get lazy and the life of ease seems to grow in us. But I pray, Father, that on this day, at this moment, it will be clear to us. And on this day, on in this moment, we would resolve to follow Christ. And on this day, and in this moment, we would resolve to follow Christ in all humility. Realizing when we say we will serve him, it means we will serve him for he will enable us. Father, we're not grabbing up all the gusto we can, all the strength we can, but we're trusting in you to supply everything. And so, Father, I pray you set apart this juice and this bread and use it in such a way that will remind us of Jesus, that he's the very one who has died for us. He's the the very one who lives for us. He's the very one who sent his spirit to work within us, to enable us. He's the very one who will receive glory by our lives. So I pray, Father, that you would set this bread and juice apart. And Lord Jesus, that you would come and you would be at this table with us, be present here, so that our trust in you will increase, so that our understanding that you satisfy and our belief that you will satisfy us will increase, so that we will be empowered to live in a way that serves you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord. And he invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope except in his sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, that is, as the Savior of sinners. And all those 
who, dependent upon God's grace and working by the Holy Spirit, desire to follow after Christ, to serve him. That's true for you. Please come. These two sections can come down the aisle to my left. These two sections down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and in humility, in dependence upon Christ, think, yes. That's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. Please come. Our benediction uh, during this Advent season, Christ has come, Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said... Christ is come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.